that's the greatest underrated element of being a comedian. I'm driving to the show. I could think of an idea and do it, you know, 20 minutes later. I'm the editor. I am the controller. I am the ruler. That was a that was a new thing to me the first year or two. You're listening to the comedian and writer Scott Long. Scott and I have a wide-ranging conversation on comedy and life on this episode of Michael Loves Indie. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indie. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation with the comedian and writer Scott Long. He's someone who's been a friend of mine for several years, calls Indianapolis home, but he's got a national audience. He's been on NBC, Fox TV, Bob and Tom show. If you know the comedian and impressionist Frank Caliendo, Scott wrote Frank Caliendo's NFL comedy sketches for 13 years. Scott's album, Good Dad, Not a Great Dad, um, you can find it on any streaming service. You can Google his stand-up, and uh, it's great. And as you know, I'm fascinated with anyone who has made the arts their profession and the creative process. We talk a lot about that in this conversation, but we also talk a lot about life because Scott and his wife have three children and around Father's Day of this year, the Indianapolis Star did a great profile of their family. Specifically, Scott's oldest daughter, Maddie, has autism and other developmental disabilities. And Scott is not only a very devoted husband and father, but he started uh, documenting and chronicling his life with Maddie, with his oldest daughter, including a series of videos on social media. And they're really inspiring. And we talk a lot about how being a dad and especially a father to Maddie have impacted Scott's view of life and of his craft. We talk a lot about Indianapolis. We talk a lot about Scott's beloved Iowa Hawkeyes. And like a lot of people who move to Indianapolis, Scott is one of the best ambassadors of our city that you'll ever meet. So I really enjoyed this conversation a few months ago. Um, I really hope you enjoy it too. The comedian and writer, Scott Long. Because we met through podcasts. We met because you, and I thought this was a really good idea. And this was actually maybe five or six or seven years ago before podcasts were everywhere. You just, you set out to have an Indianapolis podcast and just go interview everybody. Is that right? Um, There's no shortage of comedians talking to other comedians. It's, uh, it just felt a bit too self-involved. And so I'm like, I want to meet interesting people that uh, I don't run into. So yeah, that's what I did. I just, I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, I knew Mitch Daniels tiny bit. And so that was my, he was my helpful thing in regards to, uh, I don't know if I, you know, I meet some, like I would reach out to somebody who had never I'd never met and they'd be like, well, oh yeah, okay, you're who and okay, well that might be kind of fun, but I'm a little concerned. I'm like, well, Mitch Daniels did it, you know, uh, I would think maybe you could do it and you're like, oh yeah, Mitch, if Mitch Daniels could do it, I could do it. I've got way less to lose than Mitch Daniels and this was 2000, 
probably 14 or 15 or something like that. So that's when I met uh, you. That's when I met Ryan Vaughn. That's when I met Leonard Hoops. I just kind of picked people that I thought were interesting. And um, you guys all kind of came in at the same time in a way. Yeah, but and one thing about because you know you're from Iowa, right? And I'm from Southern Illinois, and we'll right. get into this. So, but both of us have lived here about the same amount of time. I've did most people take that meeting because I found in Indianapolis most people take that meeting. Yeah, that's that's helpful. What you, what you did also discover is that most places people will take it because if you reach a certain level, but you're not in the entertainment business, it's like. Well, that sounds fun. That's something I would like to do. And then, you know, you look at somebody's uh, past history uh, and they're like, oh, well, this person was on, that person was on. And that helps the whole kind of process. But no, um, I was at the time shifting from being a touring stand-up comedian at comedy clubs. Just comedy clubs, every major club from the improvs of the funny bones to the zanies to an Indianapolis crackers. And I had done that for, you know, 22 years and I could kind of see the writing on the wall in regards to at the time I would, I would headline all those places, but, uh, which you're like, well, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty great when you put in perspective that there's 45 people a year that will headline those clubs because a couple will come back twice a year and then there'll be other, the Thanksgiving week and the Christmas week that they, if they do it, it's just some local comedian. And I could see that there was, I was a superstar. I called myself superstar in triple a, like, you know, there's always that, that baseball player that you're like, that dude has killed it. Like he was in Denver and then he was in Indianapolis and he, he, he smoked the ball in Toledo, but he hardly have do, has done anything in the majors. And uh, sometimes that's just luck and what team you were on. Well, I was kind of felt like that. Yeah. And We'll, we can get into it later, but I, I, I purposely chose that. So I decided I'm going to get out of um, doing clubs as much because all of a sudden the clubs were getting a lot of YouTube and reality show people. Yep. And, you know, this week we have Steve-O from Jackass. Well, I, I can't compete with that. Yeah, yeah. So that but, was my move. But the focus, and I'll encourage everybody, and they, they can find it. People who subscribe to podcasts, the name of the podcast about Indianapolis, it's still out there on your website, right? Mm, not, really. not really. Okay. No. It was, it was, you did it, and it was. And it it exists. Away. If yeah. you want to try to find some, they they are actually. I'm I'm proud of them. I think they were really yeah. good. They were because well, and what I'm interested in too is it's like so. I I started this. It was during COVID. Um, as I told you, I'm, uh, you know, I thought the world needed another middle-aged white guy with sure. podcasts, but, yeah. but I, but I start, you know what I started, I sat on the idea for a long time. Cause I'm like, there's too many podcasts, but I started doing them to document because yeah. I'm like, I won't have this job forever, but I didn't ever tell you, I was partly inspired by you because oh. you were just, well, no, cause you were just like, you're just like, hi, I'm Scott Long. I tour all the time, but I live here. I just want to learn more about Indianapolis. Yeah. And I sort from that, I sort of learned. I don't need any more intro than that. I no. just go up, show up and have a conversation. Is that? 
it's very that was very much the case uh the the wonderful thing that i've noticed uh you being a musician and uh your podcast sounds awesome <laughs> like i was I'm listening a- to some of your older podcasts and i'm like oh my gosh these <laughs> sound great i'm this obsessed guy. yeah I'm obsessed with this i mean uh this is like uh the, the, if if something happens at FYI, you know, NPR, Indianapolis, they could just have them drive down yeah. the street and we're, record here because it sounds beautiful. We're, we're sitting in my house um, in beautiful Fall Creek Place. I guarantee if you're here again, well, I hope to have you in a, again in a year, this will be soundproof sure. just because I'm that obsessive about it. So. Oh, yeah. Let me, let me so. Now, pe- when you were looking for a new house, was that part of your uh, thought process? When I saw this room, which if pe- some some of the listeners have been here, it would be a perfect like elderly person's first floor bedroom, sure. honestly. But it's a perfect size for having like the band members over and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's got some sunlight. So, yeah. Totally. And I want, I want to, cause I'm, I'm obsessed with your process and we'll get into it before we get into it though. A lot of people listening to this will know who you are, um, because you become a fixture in Indianapolis, but I want to go back to the beginning. Um, you grew up in Iowa. Yeah. I grew up in Newton, Iowa, which was the home of Maytag washers and dryers. So it was a very blue collar union town, similar to probably Anderson or something like that where you know it was a UAW town too Maytag was pretty much the only company that wasn't uh, a United Auto worker actual people working on autos so it was a good place to grow up on a lot of levels Uh, you know the the workers did not make you know uh, Ford or Chevy kind of wages but it was a town of like 13,000 people and, you know, everything was around, you know, Maytag and had been there forever. And then Whirlpool bought it out in the late, I think it was in the nineties and, uh, 60 minutes even did a story on it. And of course the whole town just, you know, every, the real estate values you know, we're cut in half in a day. You know, that's just what happens. And they built like an Indy car track there, the one that's the Iowa Speedway. Oh, yeah, the, in, the corn. The, yeah, the, I, yeah, the, yeah, whatever. I think corn uh, 300. Or, right, yeah, ethanol yeah. pace. You yeah, know, yeah. The, and it's a great little, it it's is. a great track. It There's is. a lot of values to it that you can't get anywhere else. Yep. It's really fun. But that's that's a temporary job. East you know? of Des Moines, Iowa. I can picture it now. It's like on right on I Right. It's right off of I eighty. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I grew up like yeah. probably half I could see the track if I would have grown up there half a mile away. So then I lived there till I was thirteen. Then I moved to Altoona, which is right outside of Des Moines. At the time it really wasn't a suburb. It was just like a small town, but Adventureland, which was the uh place to go. It's like a six flags or a something like that a smaller version and then they put a horse track there so i i lived those places went to university of iowa met my wife who went to iowa too um and her parents had moved from chicago to carmel so when i came here after i spent a year in chicago Mm -hmm. after and i'm like well this is really uh i like I live in Chicago and I knew a lot of my friends were from Chicago that went to Iowa. So I went there and like, I was really miserable. Really? Uh, Let me, let me back up a little bit because you've shared that you studied journalism at university of Iowa 
And, but I, I'm, I'm interested, you know, where, where the seeds of that got planted. And I mean, this is, as you know, I'm fascinated and I sort of look up to anybody who's been able to make it as an artist. I mean, make, let, gain notoriety as an artist, let alone make a living as an right. artist. I'm just fascinated. I'm fascinated by that. Where, if, were there early experiences when you were growing up that might have predicted you would go this direction? There shouldn't have been. I mean, I total dysfunctional childhood. Uh, my parents, my mom had just turned 18. My dad was 20. Uh, there was no idea that anyone would be a writer. It wasn't like people went to college in my family or anything like that. So I, uh, you know, played a lot of sports. I, you know, that was my greatest love. I read voraciously and, uh, but I always under, you know, I was like, there were idols that I kind of grew to have by the time I was in high school. Uh, our local paper had Mike Royko in it and he was from Chicago and he was the days of when a columnist was really big, you know, cause there was no internet. There was four, four channels, five, maybe if you lived in a major city. And so, he was like, I just loved his writing, even though he was a political writer. And then there was this guy named Jim Murray, who was kind of the, he was an artist and he was funny and I was funny. Um, comedy was kind of my, I did not see myself becoming a comedian. I mean, I loved George Carlin. I loved Richard Pryor, Steve Martin. That was my generation. And um, I wanted to bring that to writing. It was always like I wanted to write, but I wanted to be funny too. And so that's where the whole thing, I'm going to go to Iowa, I'm going to be a journalism major, and I'm going to be a columnist, and I will write funny columns. So so the the idea of being a columnist and the power of the written word, so that is it fair to say that came before the realization that, oh, I can get a reaction and connect with people. Yeah. Okay. Very much so. Now, I was the class clown in high school. Most comedians are not. People think they are. They're not um, because most class clowns were the people that would put a whoopee cushion under the teacher's seat. And I was more the comedian that would make the teachers laugh too. Like I would get away with stuff because they were like, oh, he's funny. And I would, you know, my material was not, oh, that kid's got, you know, uh, a booger hanging from that. That wasn't my, my, mine was, I would make fun of the subject we were learning that day. Yeah. So like history class, um, it, they might have you read a passage and I would be reading it as a, like, a like I'm from England you know, and I'm doing Monty Python voices though, you yeah. know, like as the king or, you know, or the next voice might be some kind of rednecky voice and the teacher and everyone would laugh, but they, a lot of kids were paying attention that probably weren't before. And the kind of a really cool thing. And I do a lot of school things, not a lot, but some, and it's for teachers. I don't, I don't want to perform for, for 10 year olds. I don't want to perform for 16 year olds, truthfully. Yeah the teacher said to me, he's like, you know what? You're really funny. And I actually enjoy what you do, but I cannot follow what you're doing. You're kind of throwing off everything. So on Friday, she said, if you can be quiet during the week, 
I will give you like five minutes on Friday to get up in front of the class. How old were you? That point I was a senior probably in high wow. school. And that, you know, and I've told, uh, I, I've told the, the sons of both this, this lady in, in more recent years, I'm like, well, your mom was kind of the first person that ever gave me a little time. I still didn't see myself as a stand-up comedian, but as most people know, print journalism has been dying for 30 years. And I could see right when I got to Indianapolis in the nineties and I was still trying for a year or two to try to do that. It just, I didn't, I didn't have the, I become friends with like Bob Kravitz, really good friends with him since. And, you know, he's the best calmness that ever has been in this state. And even though Greg Doyle's very good too, yeah. but Bob, Bob, he was, he was kind of a unicorn. He, he blew out. Like he was 26 years old and he was writing for sports illustrated. That I mean, he had a, like a magic carpet ride and he would tell you that, but he was super good too. Um, Prolific. Could, yeah. Yeah. And I could not see that vision. I knew I was going to probably have to write for, you know, the Plainfield times and cover high school sports for three years. And then, and I just didn't have that kind of patience. And then stand up comedy was right at its, zenith in the early 90s on television and i'm like let me give that a try yeah so at the time i did that one one this is a personal question i'm sure. not trying to pry but it's like a lot a lot of comedians a lot of writers a lot of musicians they get it it's it's a lot of work mm-hmm. you know you have to have a high tolerance for risk and i know not every but a lot of artists are kind of that becomes an outlet for them working out you know, anxiety or different things happening in their life. And like that's therapy a, almost. Yeah. Was, was that, was that the case for you? And I'm not trying to pry. No, I mean, no, a, please. Um, yes. I'm very much an open book on that. I, I, I have a joke that, you know, people are like, Oh, you're a comedian. You probably had a dysfunctional childhood. And initially I kind of take, uh, I kind of find that, you know, kind of a little insulting because I've met plenty of comedians. that didn't, but they would be right about me. So, you know, I, you know, we, when I started doing comedy and I was going across the country and even playing on the East Coast and stuff, people had no idea I was from Iowa. I didn't, I didn't carry myself that way or anything. And they're like, you're from Iowa? And I'm like, let me tell you, if you would have grown up with my dad, who was, uh, you know, very, he's manic depressive and, you know, very, but unmedicated at the time, pretty violent um it was almost like a petri dish to to develop a comedian it was like a laboratory that you could not have developed so that was you know like sometimes it's music or sports or something um it was a way for me to kind of take control of a little bit and when i got to school uh i was able to use that it's kind of a defense mechanism. It really was. It was, and for, you know, we'll get into it later because that's an important part. I I had somewhat of a pretty major change in my life that yep. changed how I looked at comedy because yep. for 20 years, uh, like the one of the major comedy club owners or managers at the Funny Bone chain used to call me the, pa- the, the comedy paper shredder 
because I would just shred people in the audience. Yeah. Like I would punch you in the face before you could punch me. Though right. I never, I was, I was very Iowa, I guess, about it. You're not mean spirited. I mean, not you're, as mean spirited. You're, you're going, you're, you're right. roasting people, but it's. I've noticed it's not. It's not a. It's not a super mean spirited confrontational. Is that fair? Uh, now I'm not mean spirited at all. Yeah. Now it's more like let's have fun and celebrate this, and I'm. I can be very self deprecating and stuff. Yeah. At the time, though, the first. 15 to 20 years, if I had a heckler and you start it, I will finish it. And, um, you know, there was a lot of anger yeah. to me, you know, it's like, you know, I wasn't in a punk rock band, but there was a lot of punk rock to yeah. me. And yeah. those are my influences too. the, the, the Kinnison's and the Carlin's and the Bill Hicks and all those people, Chris rock. That's why when Chris rock got slapped in the face and people were like, what do you think? I'm like, well, I thought of a guy who had been bullied his whole life in school. Yeah. And then he sees the most handsome, biggest movie star in the world, a guy who played Muhammad Ali in a movie and comes up and slaps him in the face hard. And he stood up to it and then didn't uh, lay into him. I'm like, it, it infuriated me to no end yeah. uh, uh, for what Chris Rock had to go through. But I had a different perspective than other people but yeah yeah ultimately you know very the the childhood i don't i don't become a stand-up comedian without it yeah who knows what i would have become yeah. but that was important and i i i know i i, I want i wanted to go back because I, I i've never asked you about that period of your life but um you also are kind of leading to in your early 20s you mentioned chicago yeah. there's a train you, you make a decision that you're not going to pursue journalism full-time right but that comedy and writing is is going to be your vocation is that yeah well it's kind of weird it um i i lived one year worked for marshall fields in chicago in like management training kind of thing and uh for those people that don't realize marshall fields was macy's but of Indian of, of Chicago. I mean, it was the biggest thing, you know? And, uh, but I hated it. I just hated the job. I hated the traffic. I didn't like the weather. I very underrated the weather in Indianapolis, by the way. Yeah. Very like you grew up in Southern Illinois, yeah. much windier where you grew up. It correct. Is. It is. And the yeah. wind is, uh, I'm not going to make this a weather forecast, but I tour all over the country the weather's very underrated here. Yeah. You know, when you're living it and it's either too hot or too cold, you feel like, okay, but still way more moderate than most places For in the sure. Midwest. Sure. And I appreciate that. So I didn't like that a part of Chicago. And I grew up in Iowa and Chicago. People always like, well, people are so nice in Chicago. You know who say this, says that? People from New York. Mm -hmm. People from Philadelphia. <laughs> They they are nice, but people in Chicago versus everybody else in the Midwest, they're not nice. It's, I mean, do you think some of that is um, you have it's there is a provincialism of Chicago because you have these yeah. you know ethnic communities going back many generations, right. and you know Indianapolis is like is like Columbus, Ohio. It's a younger city. You it know, is a lot. Is that is that? Do you think that has something something, something very different? very yeah. much? I mean, I think it's really changed maybe in the last five or ten years for the better. But yeah. I you know I used to speak about. You know, there's there's less stress in Indianapolis because there's less traffic, um, and people are more homogenous here. Like if you're Irish or you're Italian or you're this or you're that, you're just still the same hangout 
Where in Chicago, there are serious neighborhoods where that is very important to you. And there's good that comes out of that. There's uh, including the food. The food's way better in Chicago forever than it was here. It's only recently, I think, you know, Indianapolis is, you know, throwing some punches back. Yes. But, uh, you know, forever, it, the best Italian food, and it would be pronounced Italian in Indianapolis, would have been uh, Olive Garden Fazoli's. Okay. And uh, look, yeah. I'm not going to try to pretend uh, that I don't like yeah. a Fazoli's, uh, though. And you it, do, you did a bit, a well known yeah, bit years ago yeah, on Fazoli's, too. I, 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 just, did. I just thought of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. I, I always say it's for people that um, think the, uh, the Olive Garden's too authentic <laughs> and that uh, the other part was it's like for people that are too lazy to microwave their own food at home. But it's not Go- totally true. Google, Google Scott Long's bit on Fazoli's. And, and it's fantastic. Kid, it's so funny. My kids love Fazoli's. Yeah. And I feel like a big man, you know, even though it's a lot cheaper. So, yes, I, I left Chicago. I came here. This is a Indianapolis is a big Des Moines. Yeah, it is. It's, I it's, love Des Moines too. Yeah, Des Moines awesome. Omaha is really awesome. Omaha is awesome. Those places are really great. They have very similar personalities. A little different, but not yeah. not that different. Yep. And I'll I throw like Columbus, that. Ohio, in too. The Columbus thing that's different though is they have Ohio State there. They do. If and we if we had IU or Purdue down yeah. in, like near downtown, it'd be identical. It would, it would be. We'd be identical, but that Ohio State thing changes it. It's also a little more East Coast, maybe because of Ohio State with all the students that come in there. Get the fashion cluster there too in Columbus. Very much. Yeah. So I really like this. I'm like, oh, I could could live here. This is great. And so that's when I started doing stand-up and... um, I I don't think I would have been very... I'm not a very patient person. Like... um, I, my patience has gotten better, but I don't think I would have given it more than three years to have success of some sort where I was working most of the time. And I did. It's interesting because that's counterintuitive. Like you would, because that's what I, when we met several right. years ago, I was fascinated because, you know, you were, you were like, oh no, I, I chose to live in Indianapolis and I've got mm-hmm. this national platform because a lot, a lot of, a lot of people would assume you go to Los Angeles or New York. But, but how did you, yeah. how did you kind of figure out that Indy could be your home base and you could still have a successful career? Um, I thought for a long time when younger comics would come up to me and they were like, you know, should I move to New York or LA? And they were pretty young into the business. I'm like, no, you probably should move to Minneapolis or you should move to Austin or you should move somewhere where there's a really good stand-up comedy scene. Chicago never had a good stand-up comedy scene because it was an improv town. That's where, you know, Second City's based and Improv Improv Olympics Olympics and all the, all these great people from SNL that came out of there. It's not a stand-up town. This is a beef. I'm sorry. This is, I know, an all positive Indian. No one loves Indianapolis promotes them better than I do. I'm truthfully, I I do. That's right. But they have not been great to the artistic community. They have not helped musicians like they should. They haven't helped comedians, uh, even platforms where you think they would that are pretty big here. Um, it's just not that we don't have enough of the infrastructure yet, and the and like, or is it a cultural? I, I think, think it's, it's cultural. cultural. I, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not even blaming total. I'm not like blaming the people of Indianapolis. I just think that whereas. 
the comedy clubs never helped the comedians where they were helping them in Cincinnati and they were helping them in St. Louis and people that, you know, very comparable places. And that's a reason why there hasn't been more success that came out of here. So now if a comedian came up to me in the last five years, I would tell them, um, if you have a right, the right look, I'd be like, yeah, might as well go to New York or LA now. Cause the business changed. Okay. It did change. It's changed now where, um, it is all about becoming famous first on some level, be an actor, be on a comedy show. And then you might be able to do your stand up because it's all about, uh, 15 years ago when you hired, when you went to out to crackers, you didn't have YouTube to watch. Yep. You watch a two minute clip, which is very, it's not a great way to really know if the comedian's good. You're just watching two minutes of them. You're going to watch them for an hour. A lot of times they can't hold up. In those days, it was like, how can you appeal them to the broadest audience, which is what I have always done. Like, you know, my goal is to appeal to pretty much everybody. And that's why I've played in 46 states and five countries and did all those things. And that's where it changed. Um, I would say, you know, I really like living here. And then I had a family. And right when my big opportunity happened, um, I was like, it was right. um, It's probably now 17, 18 years ago or something like that. Uh, I had this huge meeting with this guy who was the, the manager of at the time, Dave Chappelle and, he was the manager of Tracy Morgan. He was the manager of Dane Cook, who was like the biggest comic in America, or almost going to be at that point, and Jay Moore, and all these huge comics. And uh, we had a meeting. He liked a script I had written. And he said, well, you know, you need to move out here, and I'm going to have you work with some guy, and I think we can kind of put this script together. This is like the dream come true for almost every comedian. And at the, he's also, and I'm putting together a show with this, my friend, uh, my, my client, Jay Moore, and it's going to be with comedians. It's going to be a reality show. It's called Last Comic Standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sounded terrible to me. Like, comedians are going to be in a house, and that's how it started. And But I'm like, and he's like, I, I think, you know, uh, you definitely should audition for that. And, and anybody that knows in, in the business, like half of the first year of Last Comic Standing were his clients. Yeah. So, and I'm like, uh, my my wife just got pregnant. And uh, I just, there's no way I would probably be in the house, you know, for a month. Uh, and I can't do that, you know? And he's like, well, this is the opportunity. And a lot of people would tell that story in my business and just look at it as this big moment of sadness or regret. And I felt some of those things then, but I don't, it's really great. I don't feel them now because I've just seen too many people that moved out there that have had some fair amount of success and they just not, they're not very happy. It's a hard life. You know, I have a nice house in you know, Indy area and that would be a crappy one bedroom condo yeah. and even an average place in LA. Well, and then something I've observed too about you, especially the last, the last several years is like, you're able to pick the projects that you want to work on yeah. that are going to be important to you and how many, how many people, you know, have that, um, uh, have that autonomy, you know? Yeah. Uh, and thank you for saying that. It's, uh, most of them don't, 
pay that much, right? You know, but that you but they feed yeah. your artistic sensibilities. Yep. That is the magic of this time period. Yep. You know, it's hard to be um, to get every, anybody's eyeballs right now. But the the plus is, you know, I try to tell creative people, I'm like, get a regular job and then do your own podcast or put out your own music or, yep. you know, work on videos that are funny or dramatic or whatever you want to do. And then if, if you feel like that's all you can do, that's fine. But it changed. Yep. It changed that, that notion that, Hey, you gotta, you gotta be a starving artist and you gotta do this and that. I don't believe in that right now. I just don't because it's just, there's too much out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that's why I'm always, happy to say that you know uh i don't feel even though i was writing for the nfl pregame show on fox i did it for 13 seasons i did it from here i was writing frank caliendo sketches and then rob riggles yep. and that was this little unique thing that was another project it was i wanted to be a sports writer it's kind of like it mm-hmm. um it it just demonstrated that you could do some things from here on a national level yeah so that's what I wanted to ask you how that came about because before we even met, um, when you were going around with right. the, the Indianapolis podcast. So I think to a lot of people, I'm a casual comedy fan. I wish I were hardcore. Maybe I need to listen to more uh, comedy in my life. But um, the probably you've had you've done a lot of collaborations with people, and I think the best known people, the people that I most recognized at the time, were Frank Caliendo right. and Rob Riggle. And I thought, what a cool thing. And then you're also quick, I think, when in your bio, it's comedian and writer. And you're yeah. always, you know, um, so how did, and for people listening, you know, Google Frank Caliendo. If you're a sports fan, you know who he is. Cause I mean, he's a great comic, but also maybe the best impression guy of our yeah. generation, right? Still, still is. Probably. Well, like older people grew up with like Rich Little and he's still alive and he's still in Vegas yep. and he has a face like he's 40, which is kind of strange, but you know, that, that happens in Las Vegas. Uh, uh, almost 40 and, and 85 at the same time. There's that, that face that happens out there <laughs> somewhat in LA. So, Here's the story. There was at one point, Rich Little had watched Frank enough on different things and said, you're the best I've ever seen, Rich Little. That, that's kind of like Bob Dylan coming up to you and going, you're the, really the best songwriter. Yeah. You know, I'm, uh, I mean, I, I, I was, but, you know, you really are the best. He's just remarkable. And unlike almost Rich Little, for example, and if you, Daryl Hammond even, who I've worked with, Frank is a funny comedian and a great impressionist, whereas most of the time the impressionists were always like, and here I am as uh, Jack Nicholson, and here I yeah. am as, um, you know, wh- whatever person you want to be. So, yeah, I got involved with Frank early on and uh, started writing his stuff. And even during the pandemic, we had a podcast, which we did for about two years. It was the third person in the podcast really i was the third person the, the the second person the first person um with frank was this guy named john holmberg who is kind of like maybe you'd say he's like the howard stern of phoenix uh he's been number one there for like 20 years he's an amazingly talented guy though who can do incredible impressions as well but is just really funny and really sharp and that was super fun and uh it helped me during the podcast pandemic uh which without you know belaboring that because it's not really fun to go back in time on that 
it just you can guess not a good time for stand-up comedians no, no audiences, uh, you, yeah. you couldn't even do it yeah it was just like okay uh florida and iowa are open and south dakota and that's it and so if you can you can work there then you know you know that that was it those yeah. was about the only three states where i could even play so i'm doing this podcast and it was really good and we had great guests we had yeah. like shack was on it yeah and what's the name Snow. of it for people it was called it. the uh caliendo cast yeah so yeah. very check creative. it out if you're listening yeah, yeah and it was good and uh what, what happened with it uh my theory both of those guys frank was not only famous by 25 or 26 he was already on mad tv by probably 26 27 he had been the number one college comic almost right out of college himself and then john holmberg was the number one morning guy by like 26 these guys have been rich their whole life this podcasting stuff just unless they were going to make a lot a lot of money it just wasn't worth their yeah. time yeah and i'm like it's worth my time yeah. you know it's <laughs> <laughs> but you know, my favorite story with that was they, uh, I was talking about having a, a, a coupon and how I use a lot of coupons. And I, first off they, I think I said coupon and they were like coupon, it's coupon. I'm like, well, I, maybe it's Midwest. I don't know what. And, uh, I'm like, well, you guys, I mean, you probably don't use them now, but I mean, didn't you, well, I don't think we've ever, neither one had ever used a coupon. Because they'd been rich their whole life. And I'm like, there's never been a moment on this podcast where I've related more to the audience and you guys have not. So that it was kind of a cool, fun juxtaposition. I was on the third yeah. wheel in that, which I've learned how to be that, whereas yeah. I couldn't have done it when I was 30 or 40. So I want to ask you about, um, I know I'm going back in the NFL show Please. because my memories of that, this is long before I met you because I would watch it because I'm, you know, I'm definitely a NFL fan is that it was blink and you'll miss it. It was yeah. very fast and very efficient. And I, I guess I'm picturing you're writing 10 minutes knowing it gets spliced down to a oh. minute or something like that. How did, how did that, how did yeah. that work? Well, there was like for a while I wrote with uh, the first year they had a guy who ended up writing with on the Chelsea Handler show. He was a terrible fit for this. I don't know why they hired him. He was just, just, you know, he, his, his references were not what NFL football fans reference. Okay. So he didn't go do well. That was part of why I came in second, third, fourth year. I worked with a guy named KP Anderson who ended up He's created a lot of TV shows, including The Soup and things like that. He's a pretty big-time uh, showrunner in L.A. And then another guy uh, that took after KP was gone is a guy named Jeff Cesario, who wrote for Larry yeah. Sanders. And, and, and he was you'd see Jeff Cesario on, like, Tonight Show and stuff like that in the all 90s. The and all, all the time. He's funny, yeah. yeah. Very yeah. funny, and yeah. it just, I mean, he's been a showrunner for a yeah. Queen Latifah show and all these. Yeah. So these were the people that I was writing with, and... Um, what I would do, I, you know, I'm in, in Fishers and I'm writing out jokes and ideas and sending them out on Monday to the producer of the NFL show who had a pretty good sense of humor for a sports guy, but sports guy. Okay. And then, you know, the Super Bowl sketches that we did that a hundred million people would see, whereas, uh, a great Saturday Night Live week is 15 million. So in truth, our sketch was by far the most watched sketch of the year. 
cool. And cool, but weird. Yeah. And then it gets yeah. even weirder. Rupert Murdoch would actually look at the scripts for those on the Super Bowl. Just to see if there's anything too yeah. edgy? or well, right, I don't know right. what it was, but, okay. you know, but yeah, I mean, just that's, to give you an idea of the level of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm, there's this this comedian, you know, in, in, you know, central Indiana banging away on his, uh, you know, his Dell, you know, in 2009, you know, and so... It's one of these really cool things uh, that I was proud of, but it was very frustrating, as you said. Uh, you would send in jokes or ideas, and I'd been a comedian all my life. That's the greatest underrated element of being a comedian. Yeah. That is, I'm driving to the show. I could think of an idea and do it, you know, 20 minutes later. Yeah. Whereas, because I have, I'm the editor. Yeah. I am the controller. I am the ruler. I am not. A, I I never have been any good at doing comedy improv. It's like why don't you improv? Because I'm not a very good team player. Like I'm a pretty good team right. player. As long as I'm not on stage with you, I'm really a good team player. Then, but that was a that was a new thing to me. The first year or two, I would bitch to Caliendo afterwards. I'm like, well, why don't we do this or that? And he's he's like. Hey, you got to learn to realize that you don't have control over this. You know who doesn't have control over it? Me. Yeah. And it's my thing called Frank's Picks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had to learn a lesson that way. By the end, uh, I would still get frustrated, which I was glad I got frustrated. I feel like a lot of people that sit in these writers' rooms in LA are just like, uh, cast, you know, just trying to hang on all the time. And the, the business is about hanging on. You yeah, know, it, right. It's like if, if you, uh, Ruoff, almost all the acts are old, yeah. you know, because uh, they can still draw. Uh, in comedy, that doesn't work the same way. Yeah, right, right. It just doesn't. It's a younger person's business overall. So that was another reason why I went into corporate. But clearly... Um, it's cool that you've got this great relationship with Caliendo yeah. still in the podcast and everything. Now I'm fascinated. So I saw you a few times when we first met several years ago, right. I've seen you a couple times since. Sure. And it reminds me, forget it's the musical reference. You're like the band, the hold steady or something. So like, I love the whole, you know, you know I mean? It's like you, you, you every once in a while they throw in a Minnesota <laughs> twins reference. <laughs> totally too. Right. It's like, so that's what it reminds Kirby me. But you've got, there? you've got a following. You're not a top 40 artist, but you've no. got a following. But the thing, and again, I'm not not a comedy aficionado. I'm a casual fan. But I think I think like any great artist, lately when I've seen you, it's you have more, you're still the same Scott Long, but you have more of a vibe of this is who I am, you know, take it or leave it. Yeah. Is that is that a I mean, is it just me? No, really that's into, that's unfair okay. to to the truth. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> I'm glad okay. it comes off that way. Okay. But uh, you know, so often uh, people will be like, "Well, you just have to really be yourself. You have to be your authentic self." And quite frankly, I'm constantly in this current world. Uh, I am constantly editing myself to not be my total self. Because I'm not hosting uh, the show on WIBC, you know, some political show on WIBC, like my co-host on my football betting show on Wish with Jason Hammer, who he never talks politics on that show. That was our deal. Um, but I'm not doing his radio show where I can just say whatever I want, okay? 
Uh, I don't. And like when you, when corporate groups hire me, I don't get into anything like that. Right. It's kind of the, um, my 35 year old self would just shake his head at looking at me now. Yeah. But in truth. And, pro- and probably imagining your 35 year old self would also probably challenge, would probably see how far you can get. <laughs> oh, <laughs> very. The- <laughs> oh, that's why I could not yeah. do corporate shows until then. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's why I pulled off a lot of my more R rated material just because. Um, let's say uh, the local bank or, you know, a printing company hires me for their holiday party and they look through the, my videos and they're like, Oh, dry bar, you know, which I had this special. There's like a, over a million people have seen it. The clips look good. They're like, Oh, that's funny. And that's funny. And he's doing improv too. And I don't usually see that in these things. And, uh, Oh, and it says he's going to write stuff about us too. And, uh, Oh, wait a minute. That what's that? He looks younger, but that doesn't seem quite right. And I can say to them, hey, I'm not going to do any of that. But as soon as they visualize that, I get it. It's just human nature. Yeah. You're like the, you know, the the person in human resources is going, oh, my gosh, we can't have that. He did that in 1997. Yeah. And uh, that's what that's why actors and people like that that have said things or done things way back when it was the zeitgeist of the times. And now it's not. Um, just watch movies from 10 years ago and you're like, did that happen? That happened? That was that was okay then. Even for people who are not politically correct go, that's really amazing. 20 years ago, forget about it. Right. And we, I guess I had to change and um, my daughter who's on the autism spectrum, she changed my viewpoints on life. You know, I grew up yeah. in this very angry the circumstances and I was, you know, like I said, trying to punch you first before you could punch me. I had no empathy. Didn't even really know what that word means. And I'm not joking. I did not know what the word meant. I did not, I never heard the word until probably 2010 anyway. Um, So I got empathy. I got patience, things that I did not have. And all of a sudden I had all these stories that were, so not like my act. Like I didn't talk about being married, even though I've been with my wife since 87 at Iowa, um, which has got to be a comedy record, stand-up so, comedian right. record. To stay together. Right, or a right, musician, right, either right. one. Yeah. And so there's that, and I'm like, and I felt like my audience was there more too, and I wanted to stay a little closer to home overall. So that's when the evolution changed, and I went from being more like a Dave Attell you know, boom, 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 joke, yep. joke, joke, funny, dirty joke, boom, 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 to, you know, a different. I want to, I want to get to the, your family and the right. remarkable story. It's documented in the Indy star story that ran on father's day. Before I do that though, I yeah. want to, for people listening is, and I'm fascinated by this, just the mind of the comic and you're, you know, yeah. every comic's different. So I know it's a generalization, but it's like, so it's like, I enjoy comedy. I'm terrified you know what I mean? And someday I'll do it. You've asked me for a while to do it. Someday I'll just, yeah, I do this celebrity thing called celebrity indie celebrity standup. And it's every year it's a a different, uh, developmental disability charity from special Olympics this year. It was the great people at Daymar and it's really grown into something wonderful, but I, I've told you before, I've asked you twice, but it's like, I I get it. No, 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 I get it. 
It is it, terrifying. So why? For the people listening. So get inside. Okay, okay, here's here's how I'd ask the question. Yeah. You're a person, let's say your family and your friends tell you you're funny. You're like, I'm gonna stand up, I'm gonna get up and do stand up. So sure. like what's the first what are the first things that just smack you in the face if you're not for the inexperienced comic trying to do comedy? That's how I'd phrase a question. Well, when I do this uh, celebrity stand-up thing, and even, like Mayor Ballard's done it twice, Mark Boyle from the Pacers, you, you name it, all kinds of different indie celebrities have done it, um, I always offer up a couple classes, like at least one, where I'm like, you guys can come, and I will tell you how to develop you know, a five- or ten-minute set, excuse me, that would work well with this, so... Uh, the first thing I tell them is when you go up on stage, you would not be uh, floored by this since you have done so much music on stage. The lights are bright. You're not going to see the audience much. And don't spend the first minute going, boy, these lights are bright. Blah, 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 blah. It's just like, okay. The reason why if you're like a celebrity doing something for a fundraiser or a charity, very different than when I go up on stage is... Uh, no one expects you to be good at this. They appreciate that you're doing it, and they they are they see themselves in you. They uh, the audience does not look at me and go, "Oh, I see myself doing that too." Very few people do, um, because I'm a super pro at it. Like if you go to an open mic where somebody's playing a guitar and they're not very good, you might be in the audience going, "Oh, I kind of relate to that." Okay, but. If you're paying to see a professional, you expect that person to be a professional. That's right. So when you get up there, uh, you, there's just like there's the techniques of the way you are. You going to hold the mic stand? I mean, are you going to take the mic out of the mic stand? These seem very simple, but they're really important. Like the, the you don't want to. Demonstrate your nervous energy by holding a mic in one hand and moving the mic stand back and forth like you're, uh, you know, I, I can't even give you not like you're taking batting practice swings in the on deck circle. You know, you don't need any of that. So you get that out of the way. Then comedy should be like the celebrities that have done it well are the ones who talk about how the audience knows them. Hmm. If you are a former athlete don't sit and do five minutes on material like your uh stephen colbert or jimmy kimmel they want to hear the perspective of you they you want to tell like what that's how you get them initially then if you want to delve into a little bit of that that's fine okay i'm unknown comedian let's say i'm unknown comedian you know that's the big advantage when you get known somewhat if you're a superstar you get basically five minutes where you could bomb 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 on stage and people would be like well you know this guy's he's built up a lot of uh you know sweat equity with me because he's made me laugh so much or i love him so much but after about five minutes you're like this is bs it happens it happens i mean you know Chappelle or chris rock or george carlin used to go out trying to build their next hour. And if you caught them early, it sucked. And you're like, that sucks. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, the idea of me doing stand up, I'm really competitive about it, which 
is good and bad. It's not always helped the creative process, but I really cannot stand bombing. That's why I'm really good at improv. This this is this is a struggle for me though because with quote bombing, yeah. there's so much you don't control, right? I mean, that's a lot of that's going to be at my point. I can control it. I okay. mean, almost without exception. Okay. There's but, there's no way I. But won't even control it. but even the masters and even as many decades as you've been doing it, right, are not going to bat a thousand. Correct. Uh, if you're talking about. If singles and doubles count yeah. as as batting a thousand, yeah. But is it is it so is it is it possible even as many years as you've been doing this? Because this is one. There's a fear when I think when I here's where I'm right. going. When I think of stand up, I think of the fear, you right? Know? And I know I imagine you just got to push through the fear. So so tell yeah yeah if you're to, going up for the first time yeah you know there that's obviously so you, so you don't you don't have the fear now going no, out in front of audiences no and okay. I mean I there's sometimes where I'm like this is gonna suck yeah just because I'm not gonna kill I'm yeah. not gonna do spectacular and even sometimes I'm surprised by that yeah. but because um, I do shows where kids are in the audience now and things it's, there's I talk a little bit about it in my show that. Um, people will say, well, you know, you talk about your kids and you talk about food and you're from Indiana. Why are you not as successful and you're clean? Why are you not as successful as Jim Gaffigan? Because Jim Gaffigan, if people don't know, grew up in the region. Yeah, Chesterton. Uh, yeah, yeah, and went to Purdue, uh, but he never did stand up here, ever. You know, he has since he became famous, but after college, he went to New York and worked for an ad agency and then started doing stand up. Um, but we start about the same time and I never had a really great reason why I wasn't anywhere close to as successful as him. And then I saw on the show CBS Sunday morning, which he was kind of a contributor for a while, kind of doing an Andy Rooney kind of thing. They did a feature on him and they showed that he lives like in Manhattan with his wife and five kids and uh, his wife and him were talking and she had done comedy and she and him said that she writes about half of his material and at that point i realized it's like my wife's fault that i'm not more (laughs) successful i'm half as funny as jim gaffigan if she would pick up the other half you know we'd we'd be living a lot higher lifestyle but yeah you got you know you just have to know your levels there's always some i i know there's plenty of comedians that probably locally that are like why am i not as successful as scott you know, there is, you know, if you're working, you're working at, uh, Mike's or it, it's crew car wash crew car in wash Indy, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. I get mixed up. Okay. So you're working at crew car wash and the guy that's the, the, the new manager, there's the assistant manager like, why are he's doing that? We all feel some of that. Yeah. Um, and I know I kind of talked around some, your question. Well, no, no. Cause what, cause what part of what I'm getting at is, is, what what are you able to share about your are there certain habits in your preparation and here's where I'm going because you mentioned a couple times transitioning from um, doing a lot of clubs to taking on more corporate right. and the thing I've known about you is you get hired by a lot of organizations because they're saying it's like it's like here's Scott he's funny but he's going to play to a really broad audience yep. you know what I mean you're able and I think I mean I think. And I remember Bill Cosby before he did all those awful, but before we knew he did all those awful yeah. things. I, I'm, I can come up. Well, Gaffigan, I think, is a, is a better example. It's a skill to be edgy without any profanity. Yes, and you've you've got it down. I mean, as evidenced by the t- by these by these big well, audiences. Well, that you well, get. well, most comics, uh, most comedy 
is uh, it's if it doesn't have a little edge to it, it just feels boring. It's like music. It just can be, if there's not a little part of it that feels edgy. Surprise, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so I always tell people, I'm like, it's amazing how much edgier you can be if you just don't curse. And I mean, it's, it's there's an example. Uh, I might be the only comedian that curses more in their regular life than they do on stage because I don't curse at all on stage. And it's, it, it's, there's a reason why I decided to do that. You bring up Bill Cosby uh, about six years ago on my website. I mentioned that, um, that, you know, one of my big influence was Bill Cosby because he talked a lot about his childhood and his family, which I do. And then I, uh, that I've also been compared a lot to a Midwestern Louis CK. And I, Pretty much had to clear both of those off, you know, (laughs) in about the same week, it felt like. That's right. So you just never know where things are going to go. But um, yeah, I guess the process is I'm constantly um, finding things that make me laugh and uh, or I think are funny and I use social media to do that. Uh, Does it does it come in waves or are you one of these people who has sort of a lunch pail you know, kind I'm of not a lunch like, pail guy. Okay, I was going to say. Um, if I had more time, I would be that way. Yeah. But my lunch pail, then I'd be sitting writing books or something okay. like that. If okay. I had more, so time. so it comes and goes in in waves. Yeah, of, I mean, I'm like I just I'm writing funny things that I observe on the uh, on my phone, nice. and I use. Uh, if I lived in L.A. or New York, and or if I had more of a, you know, I was some big star, I'd put it up on Twitter and I'd get some action, but. You know, my, my followers are mostly on Facebook. I mean, that's where the yeah. Midwest is at. Unless yeah. maybe if you like your very hip area. And um, so I put them up on Facebook and I can tell where things are at and where they aren't. I mean, just something that's popped up in the last three days that I've posted up there has been, I notice people's names. Like it's hard for me, my brain to turn off. So like I was at, um, a Meyer and the other day and uh, the, the young woman that was taking my groceries, you know, I'm like, Hey, how you doing today? Not really anything back. And I'm like, okay, you know, it's a job, you know, I've had those jobs. I worked fast food. I worked, you know, security. I've done a lot. It wasn't like I just went right into comedy. Uh, And I noticed her name tag said her name was charisma. And I felt like, her parents had really done her wrong because she lacked any sense of charisma. She didn't have one note of charisma. So, I mean, parents need to be more careful. So then yesterday I'm at the local Starbucks and the guy's name is Bob. And I'm thinking, and he's a younger guy, but his name is Bob. And I'm like, I'm surprised that corporate did not like demand him to change his name to Xander or Kale or something. Cause it, Bob is not what your barista's name no. should be at Starbucks. No. No. Your name kind of has to fit what you do a little bit. And these are the things that just like, I'm not writing, uh, you know, some, some great piece of comedy, but at the same time, it's the kind of thing that I'm just trying at this point to make myself laugh and relate to the audience, which I relate better to an audience, especially at a corporate, than almost any comedian there is on the planet because most comedians are usually younger. If they're married, they don't have kids 
or they live a different lifestyle or if they have kids, they're not really connected to them. And I'm not saying there's no one like me, but there's very, very few. And so that was another helpful thing. Uh, when I was at Crackers on a Thursday night, most of the audience is um, hip people from Indianapolis that are in their 20s. When I was a hip person from Indianapolis in my 20s, I didn't want to hear a guy that was 50 or more. I didn't. I didn't want to hear about a guy who was being irreverent about his kids or his wife or himself, yeah. you know, and you know, being self-deprecating in the way. But I didn't want to hear about that. That wasn't my life. But then if I go to a corporate, it is. Yeah. It does work. And the other element that uh, from playing a lot of hard one-nighters I did for 20 years, you know, it wasn't just clubs, you know, honky-tonks and you name it. I got really good at improv. I mean, I was good at it in a way just because I grew up with this dad who was so, you know, aggressive and it's just like my brain would come up with things. A lot of times I wouldn't share them with him because it would have made it worse. But um, that improv, you know, it changed from trying to survive those things to as I try to market the thing. And that is I want you to I want you to be my co-stars in the audience. Uh, I'm not Tony Robbins. I'm not gonna, uh, you know, kind of create that kind of inspiration. Uh, I'm not, you know, trying to awaken the giant within. I'm not taking you on a walk through the coals, hot coals, before we get here. Those all can have their merit, but in today's world, I just discovered pretty quickly that um, corporate, when you do these corporate events, it's like the greatest team building you can possibly have because everyone's laughing together. You see the boss taking a shot, but not a mean one, but a little bit of a shot and he can laugh or she can laugh with it. It makes it feel like, Oh, they're more human. Some of these people that I'm a little tired of, um, all of a sudden I feel a different energy from it. We felt something together. And I, I, I guess I might sound like I'm over exaggerating, but that's just what I've heard from review after review. And then the other element is my daughter. And that I, I I wanted to ask you about that because um, I've known about Maddie and, you know, you were talking about kind of growth and empathy Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And you and Susan, it's a clear have made the decision to be very open uh, about your life, you know, and what, and everything you've learned. Raising she was Maddie. not. Okay. That's, okay. I don't, I don't okay. think this is too surprising, but, okay. um, I'm very much the extrovert and she's very much the introvert Got it. and she has been willing to accept that. But, um, you don't see her in the videos hardly ever with Maddie and I, that's not her thing. So for people who don't know, and by the way, if you're listening to this, check out the indie star piece that ran on father's day. Yeah. Very in depth about, you know, your life, uh, raising Maddie, your oldest daughter, you have three kids and your oldest daughter who's on the, um, autism spectrum. But for people who haven't met you before know that, can you, uh, yeah, well, For let, let me just put right out there the writer Rachel Fredette, um, young lady um, from Michigan who went to Michigan State, and she came to the Indy Star because of the story they wrote about Larry Nasser, the guy that was just horrific and just destroyed 
the gymnastics program on so many unethical ways. And he was in Michigan state also. And, um, she was truly inspired and where some people would look at, Oh, I want to go to the New York times or the Washington post. That story was so impactful. You could argue that's one of the most impactful pieces of journalism that's been written in the last decade for sure. And she came to the Indy star. That was a goal of hers because of that kind of journalism. And I can be positive or negative about things that happen in the star, just like everybody else. Um, but her story was beautiful and, and I had no idea what direction she was going to take it. Um, I early on with my daughter, Maddie, uh, when you get that diagnosis and we had tried for like five years to try to have a child and it was very difficult to the point where in vitro fertilization was our last option. I mean, at the time adoption was a real troublesome area. There'd been a lot of problems in Russia. There were some things in Guatemala and the government and the state, the, uh, the United States was even kind of putting a shutdown on adoptions that year, really slowing it down. So we're like, what are we going to do? So we do this in vitro fertilization, this amazing, um, fertility doctor in Indianapolis, uh, helped us get there. And Maddie was born and she was everything we wanted and more, and then she, you start noticing she's not reaching her milestones. And then, but you know, you're like, and I'm 37 and my wife is 36. And, um, we start having test after test. And this was 18 years ago when most people only knew autism from Rain Man. Quite frankly, that was how almost everybody knew autism unless some local news story did a thing about some savant like skill that somebody had. And it was in a lot small measure. So we were kind of learning uh, as it went by. And so um, with my job, my wife at the time was working at the lottery. And uh, she was like the media buyer for the Hoosier Lottery. And I stayed home more because my job uh, enabled that. And I didn't have like good insurance or anything like that. So my connection with my daughter is high level. Okay. And we finally get a diagnosis and it went beyond autism. Autism is just the, makes it easier to explain. And we don't, she shows almost all her traits of autism, uh, mostly. So, you know, it's not wrong to say that she's on the autism spectrum, but she had, after some pretty extensive test at IU, uh, medicine she was they said that she had a translocation of her first and third chromosomes which means that they they break off and instead of the first chromosome going all the way through it attached to the third the third one broke off attached to the first and so we're like we're she's two and a half we find this out we're like this is like most people be like heartbroken we were like oh this is great Finally, we'll have a, a roadmap for what's going on here because Maddie wasn't walking. She was bare, really not talking. Um, you know, she just, you know, she mostly kind of rolled to get to places. That was just, she couldn't crawl. She didn't have good body strength. Um, and the specialist like, well, I've never seen this before, so I can't help you. So that's just like, you know, he's like, it's not that 
that's never had a person that in mankind that's ever had it. They just didn't have any records of it. So then you're like, okay, well, there's no real path to this. And so you continue on and you let that go and um, you work through it. And then we're 40 years old and I'm very, I'm this selfish comedian who really just wanted one child. And uh, uh, that's when I came to my wife and said, I really think we need to have a, uh, another child, you know, someone needs to be there to look after Maddie when, uh, when we pass away, cause we're older parents and you know, my wife always wanted more kids anyway. So this was really just me finally, you know, so that's how we ended up in twins. The joke that I do, which is very true. It's held true. Our whole, our life is that I call them they're once a boy, once a girl, they're nothing alike. I call them the Cleveland Browns cause they're good individually, but they suck as a team. <laughs> and, uh, so that's the that's the vision right. of what happens over this four year period, yeah. and then th- they continue on, and then I realize that uh, Maddie and my twins should become part of my show. They really should, but none of the other part of my show fit with it. It would to bring it back to music. It would be like. Um, Oh, you know, like, okay, let's say I'm um, the Dave Matthews band. Maybe that's not a good example. Let's say I'm the Red Hot Chili Peppers and uh, I have, I write half the songs for the Red Hot Chili Peppers and the other half of my songs are like uh, Toad the Wet Sprocket. That's not a good mix. It's too much. It's just too much of a juxtaposition. It doesn't fit. It seems... So or even like George Strait or something like that. Well, yeah, more, yeah, even more so. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that would be too yeah. far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think. I yeah. mean, I used to wear pretty tight pants, but <laughs> I don't know if I could pull out. Yeah. So there we go. That's when the change happens. I see things that are in the business of my comedy that I can see that we're moving with it. I ended up creating a show for Fringe Festival in Indianapolis yep. that allowed me to kind of workshop this, and then I just went full bore in it. And it took a while and, you know, and I wasn't ever planning on being a corporate comedian, but I realized that I had a message because I talk about Maddie. I tell stories about her. Um, The new step in my career has been, I've been bringing her to do shows with me at times um, because she's always done the fundraisers in town. She comes out and she all of a sudden, it's one thing for me to talk about it and then you see it. Yeah. And she's this beautiful 18 year old girl now who um, has wonderful energy when she comes on stage. There's just like yeah. this, this kinetic energy that happens. And um, that's kind of the plan because yeah. there's, she's never going to work a full-time job or anything like that. So I want to bring that element. Will it be, us doing more conferences together. Maybe yeah. is it, it no matter when I bring her the energy of the thing just changes to the point where it's like, it becomes magical. And then, and then if I'm not mistaken, cause I know the charity work that you do for organizations like Daymar, it's almost from the, from the outside, it's almost like 
nationally all these people coming out of the woodwork saying, I have a story like this too. Yeah. Can you, can I come share this story with you and can you come to my town? Is that, is that accurate? I wish it would be more accurate. That yeah. was the plan initially. The plan yeah. was I was going to hopefully do a lot of fundraisers and yeah. things like that. And what you, you know, discover is, look, those organizations are not usually run by people that have kids with disabilities. They're just people that that's their job. Yeah. They're, you know, they work at it and then they have another life. And so to add a new thing to that calendar, just not their thing. Interesting. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. was, it was very disappointing. That's yeah. when I'm like, okay, I can still tell this story and do a corporate event, you know? And yeah. so then I'm being funny. I come out of the, you know, I'm talking, you know, like early on as a comedian, even though it's not really fun to relive COVID, it has impacted us like nothing else in the history of our lifetimes. We didn't have World War II that the whole world experienced or most of it. So, you know, what do I say? Well, I talk about how, you know, I'm not going to get into politics of it. What I get into is like, was there anyone like me, for example, who uh, early on when there was hard to get sanitizer and you went to like a, a store and you could tell that they were having a hard time. They had got some cheap kind of sanitizer and then you get like a sensory memory of a high school Everclear party. Okay. You know, that's the COVID story I'm going to tell, or, you know, uh, I know mask or, you know, a hot button issue. I'm just going to tell you, uh, there are times that, uh, masks are not wrong. For example, people with beautiful eyes and messed up teeth, they are embraced it fully. You know, they're, I'm always going to wear a mask at a, at a truck stop bathroom. It just feels right for me. You know, those kind of things that bring us all together. I don't care what side you are on. That's how I initially, you know, and that's not the first joke I do, but it it's early on. So that's a little bit of our life in the world. And I, I'm going to talk to people in the audience and somehow try to bring them into it. But in a way, like we're almost our own improv troupe, you know, that's how I like to do it. So, you know, if I'm at, you know, insurance group or it's, you know, whatever the group is, I can do that and make people who don't think they're funny. Yeah. Um, or at least they're like, well, I don't think I'm could be funny in public. I give them just enough of an opportunity to say something fun and I don't where I used to be antagonistic towards the audience. If they were part of it now, I want them to, I want to celebrate them being part of this. And then I tell, you know, stories about Maddie towards the end that kind of talks about my evolution as a person. And, you know, we're so negative in our country about where we're at and, um, and we obviously there are things that we need to work on. And the most positive thing in regards to inclusion in our country are people like my daughter, yeah. you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, for sure. Someone like my daughter would never have seen anybody in the general population of the school. They'd have been in the back of the school growing up when I did 40 years ago in school. I never met one person like Maddie ever yeah. where I grew up ever. Yeah. And I know they existed. I just never met them. They never were even. And now my daughter's so much part of this school and you're like, well, that's good for her, right? Well, no, it's good for the general population for because sure. there's programs, you know, 
be it unified sports or best buddies or all these kinds of things where peer tutoring, where kids that might feel there's a combination of a couple of things. There's, uh, and I'm very passionate about this because I've just not only seen it for my daughter, but so many people that my daughter has positively impacted. I wasn't ever guessing that the, the element of them maybe feeling like their life's tough and then they see this and they're like, it gives yeah. me some perspective. It maybe is their first time. I once there was during the best buddies thing in junior high, this girl came up to us and she was really sweet to Maddie and Maddie loved her. And she was like, she told my wife and I, she's like, I'd really like to go bowling with Maddie sometime. It's like a 13 year old girl. Wow. And you're like, and I said to her, I'm like, well, that's really nice. But you know, you don't have to do that. She's like, no, you don't understand. Like Maddie's my best friend. And I'm thinking, well, she kind of probably exaggerating that. Um, because Maddie take, when you were, Maddie loved being with her, but you know, you have to do most of the heavy lifting in regards to conversation and what you're doing things like more like a parent. And she's like, you don't understand. I've never felt like, you know, anybody ever really wanted to be with me. And when Maddie sees me, she just lights up. And in that moment, I'm like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Think about that for a minute. If you had a child that maybe felt like, you know, that it's it's so painful to see your child maybe not fit in here or there. And I'm not talking about a kid with a disability. I'm just calling some typically, you know, neurotypical child or whatever the terms are, but they just don't fit in for one reason or the other. Yeah. And then they get into something like that. So I just at that moment I'm like Oh, you know, it's almost like when Jerry Seinfeld, one episode was rubbing his eyes. It's like, what is this? this tears, you know, like, uh, I wasn't that I'm a lot more emotional person, but not the, I mean, okay, grew up in small town, uh, you know, Midwest. It's not like it's filled with people that are like so in touch with their feelings, especially in the seventies and eighties or whatever. So you, you told me, I, you know, the star story is a single event. I know we're talking about your whole life, but that was still, you know, you, you said this is coming out and I knew a little bit about your life and I knew Maddie and so, but, but I read it and I was like, it's, it's an, I'm not crying. You're crying kind of thing. You know, have you gotten, have you, have you gotten a lot of, um, people contacting you who read it? Cause I know a lot of people, a lot of people read it. Yeah. It's, it's one of those where, uh, you know, everybody who knew us, you know, loved it. And, um, you know, a lot of people know me now from Maddie and I's videos that we did. We, I, when she was about eight, I did this, started doing these videos called happy Mondays with Maddie, which were based on the idea, um, that I noticed when she was having meltdowns or or having a bad day. If we did a little video together, just fun, she and I, she kind of pulled her out of it. And I was also trying to get her to communicate better. And she often, if I was just, she had, if I had a camera up of some sort, um, it would help her communicate. So I just posted a couple of these videos on Mondays. She loves Mondays because that was a day of structure. That's the school bus comes, you know, everything is set at school. It works in, you know, a lot of us that aren't even, you know, on a spectrum or something like that love a schedule like my wife loves and demands a schedule i do not you know um you know we're different 
that way. You know, I'm more the loose artistic type. Let's, you know, go with it. So I start doing these videos and, um, and I'm like, okay, well we did that. And then Maddie every Monday would be like, are we going to do our video? Are we going to do our video? And I'm like, Oh, okay. So then there was social media was really starting to, you know, have more of an impact. So I'm like, okay, there's a place to put them. Maybe there's some people that this will, you know, show. And then I'm like, I don't know, a few months in, I'm like, well, I can't just show positive days because that's not fair to the parents. You know, I don't want to try to fake that this is always what it's like because it's not. There's lots of, lots of tough moments. And so then I started showing some of the tougher days too. And it evolved into something that's pretty great. We've had hundreds of thousands of people that have seen these videos. Yeah. Um, The series is called in the start. Happy Mondays with Maddie. But uh, if you go to Scott Long, uh, I I got it under. Oh, it's, it's under, if you go into Scott Long on Facebook, probably my, my, my fan page is that. Okay. I, it's not comedy. It's, it's that. But if you go to happy Mondays with Maddie at facebook.com slash happy Mondays with Maddie, I kind of archive a lot of the older videos that we do. And then the newer ones go on my regular Facebook page. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just, I've lived this kind of strange life and I like, I appreciate that you said, you know, you seem like you have a lot of different projects that you're always working on. Cause you know, I'm got two, I've always got a couple that I'm like, okay, let's try this and see if it happens. The, the indie podcast, I did probably 17 of those and I'm like, I've interviewed most of the people I want and it seems like it's becoming more work than I want to give it. I want to go to something else new. And so I'm kind of always working towards that. This new TV show I did last year, that's sports betting, nothing to do with the other part, but very similar to my old career with hammer with, with Jason hammer. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just like, we both had kind of tried to pitch this locally and then we knew each other, but we had never worked together. And, um, it was, it's really fun. I don't, I don't know if we're going to do it or not. They, they just got to sell it. They got to sell enough advertisers this year. Um, but the show itself, I felt really proud of quickly. Our chemistry was great. And unlike every other football show, we're funny. We're irreverent. Our, Number one sponsor last year was Evan Williams. So we were drinking tequila or drinking bourbon while we're giving picks. It's like, like I said, it's like a tailgate for your TV. We're just a little funnier than your friends and probably not quite as good looking. And people can Google Google long and hammer or what if you go to youtube you can see the clips on there if you go it's called all indiana bets that's what wish uh, tv did um it it, i wish the show could be bigger you know that was kind of the hope and maybe it'll get there uh because i feel like i've been involved with a lot of projects and that one um people that don't even like football much or sports that much really love the show because it's so different. It's kind of like a little more of what uh, you used to see 10 years ago on TV. It's uh, way less superficial in its stuff. It's more like two guys sitting there taking on 
football and betting and talking about things. And fortunately, especially uh, myself, I had a spectacular year, which, you know, if, you know, Jim Mora was on the show, you'd expect him to know what he's talking about. I'm a comedian from Indianapolis. Why would he know anything? And my bets actually turned out well, which is somewhat lucky, but I'll take the luck. Uh, But it was fun. I mean, there were, we would do challenges and we'd throw pies in each other's faces and we had you know hammer dressed up as christina aguilera once you know because he had he lost a bet it's it it's maybe a little bit like morning radio meets football meets betting um so that was a new project cool. i've done a different thing you know uh who knows what the next one check is check that out I, I've I've kept you way longer you're than fine. I meant. Do you still have a few minutes? Yeah, please. I got two things. I got I got to yeah, ask please. you, but they might Go be quick hits. No, you're fine. The Iowa Hawkeyes. So you yeah. and I. Okay. So you and I, pre-COVID, and we only did this a few times, and we should make it an annual thing. A couple times, I dropped the ball, but it was a football bet. So you know what we had, we both have in common. We went to Big Ten schools, but are not Indiana or right. Purdue. So we're kind of out of place in this market. But we love, and you're, you love your Iowa Hawkeyes and I love my Northwestern Wildcats. Now what I, what I, I don't know if I've asked you this before. Iowa Hawkeyes fans are tough. I don't know if I've met another fan base that it's like straight face. They'll be like, no, we, we, we need to compete for a football a national championship every year and basketball national championship every year. Is it just that, that that is your pro sports when you grow up in Iowa? It definitely is, it, is our pro sports. Yeah. Okay. That, you know, um, it is, it can only reflect if like you're from Nebraska yeah. or you're from some state like that where maybe South Carolina, like with Clemson or something. Yeah. Like yeah. yeah. It's, it's very Alabama for sure. Yes. Okay. That, there you go. Or, um, yes, I think the football fans, um, are probably you felt that energy more because yeah. Northwestern has kind of been their um, the thorn in their shoe. Iowa still beats Northwestern more often, but I feel like there are years when Iowa was challenging for the Big Ten a few yeah. times. And and Northwestern, Northwestern beat them. them. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Northwestern has cost Iowa more uh, more than anybody, including yeah. a year where they probably are in the the. The playoff. The final four. Yeah, yeah, right. If Northwestern doesn't beat them. Yeah. And they're fluky a lot of times, yeah. you know, but Northwestern wins games by being fluky. Yeah, that's right. They win games by... Because they're not going to... I love Wildcats. They're not going to compete on talent. With, no, with and Iowa, I mean, I, I, mean yeah. I happen to think, you know, there's been no coach that's gotten more out of their program than, you know, Pat Fitz. Yeah. You know. So yeah. what I would share is I don't think Iowa fans think they're going to play for the national championship okay. they're not nebraska fans are the ones that still live in that world yeah but what iowa fans do think is that they should probably always win their side of the big 10 um at least every year every other year in wisconsin should probably be the only other one that can compete with them that's where they believe and that mostly has been the case uh wisconsin has a lot closer and better talent in their state so and so you would think they would do better basketball. Um, I think they had a long run of being really good in the eighties and nineties. Yep. And then the two thousands were very up and down. And so the fans kind of got a better understanding of, you know, we shouldn't be that good. And I always tell my son who's grown up here, but he's a huge Iowa Hawkeye fan. 
He's like, why are we not better? And you know, we're, we're good. Then we don't, I'm like, we are, I was overachieving so much. Late, lately, the last five years oh, or so, really good. You know, they're overachieving completely based on a system they're running and that they get certain and that their head coach is really good at finding, um, you know, underrated gems, be it Keegan Murray was the fourth pick in the NBA draft, but only one school offered him a scholarship out of high school, and that was Western Illinois. No way. That was it. And so he went to a prep school for a year yep. in Iowa. His dad played at Iowa. That's why he grew up in Cedar Rapids, his brother too, who's going to be great. So that's where I would say with Iowa. But yes, it is that that concept that we uh, people in Iowa, it is our pro team. But there's another big school in the state, which is odd. You know, like there's no school in, in Ohio as big as Iowa State besides Ohio State. Like Ohio State has that state. That's right. You know, Illinois doesn't have another Illinois. No. Nope. But Iowa has, Iowa's in the Big Ten, Iowa State's in the Big 12. Yep. Okay. So that kind of mitigate some of yep. what happens. Minnesota has no big school. Wisconsin does not either. So, you know, I was kind of this weird thing where there is two, you know, t- power five teams, you know, just like Indiana has. Yep. With, uh, so that does change a little bit of it, but Iowa kind of, it's, I was kind of like the Indiana and yeah. uh, Iowa state's more the Purdue. Who's your favorite Iowa athlete ever? First person that comes to mind stands out. I think it's because I live in Indianapolis that that's been changed some. It, it, you know, I would either say Dallas Clark or Bob Sanders because yeah. then they played at with the Colts. Right. They both were great. Yeah. In um, so those guys always jump out to me. Um, you know, it's I became friends with Luca Garza's dad, Frank Garza, and he's a huge fan of my daughter Maddie because cool. Maddie loves basketball and yep. she's the manager and she's a great shooter. So he started sharing videos of theirs. Luca sent a bunch of like autograph things. So we feel a, our whole family feels a real tight connection to him. And he's, he's kind of the, you know, there, there's no better example of someone who took limited talent and made himself great i mean the college player of the year was was second as a the year before that and he's slow and he had differing things now it helps to be 610 yeah he didn't do it he still but the growth and you see it in his stat line how much growth he had every year just just you know his dad would post things of their workouts and they're kind of legendary like you know what kind of you know, insanity is it, you know, yeah. that that would take, but that showed his passion towards it and it showed his dad's Absolutely. passion and their great relationship they had. That It's really, it's cool. So probably Luca is now, but, you know, I always think of the two Colts that were both just all pros and neither one were drafted in the first round. And, yeah. you know, just, uh, and every anybody that's ever met Dallas Clark, knows that he's just like this awesome dude. Sure. I mean, he's yeah. just you know, Iowa small town guy who's uh, just a wonderful person. Yeah. Last question. I know I've kept you way longer than I intended, but 
there something you said earlier made me think of in music the pianist Lawrence Hobgood said to me one time he's he's like he said this isn't my quote but he said improvisation is composition slowed down and then he said oh. comp, no, wait no, sorry. Improvisation is composition sped up. Sped up. Composition is improvisation slowed down. With right. all these corporate, do you find yourself giving advice to organizations because you do events for all kinds of organizations about how they can incorporate, you know, methods and ideas from comedy I t- into uh, you know I, into I, what they that do? That was one of my uh, plans, and yeah. I tried doing that. Actually, it was on with Gary Dick. Yeah, we talked about it on All Indiana Business. Um, I talked about it. I worked with some, even people that were CEOs and things like that on how to be better speakers, how to use a little bit of their own life and just little things that I would teach, you know, just people like, you know, if some person takes my celebrity stand up thing or does it with me and I teach them some of those simple principles that like, I cannot, there's no way you could teach someone to look like a presentable musician in three hours. You just, they'd have to be doing a lot. Some of it is just you, get it, do the, you do the work and you kind of, yeah, yeah, but kinda, you can't yeah. play the guitar in three hours. That's you right, can't play right. the drums, that's right. That's right. but you can be someone who's a much better speaker that comes off like they're kind of the masters of their own domain. You know, like Leonard hoops walks up, in front of a group, the head of, you know, what's his group called? Visit Indy. Yeah. Okay, oh, sorry. Yeah. I was messing with hey, Leonard. How you hey, doing? Um, he's, he's been on the show. Yeah. He probably has some kind of app or technology that if his name pops up, then he'll be listening. So you don't have <laughs> and to monetize uh, it. I didn't, I didn't talk about it before. Right. I didn't talk. Sorry. I waited till the end. So great. Leonard, but, um, he owns the room. Yeah. Like right away. And yeah. you can tell that he's like, I'm excited to be up here. And how do you teach that? Well, I can kind of teach you how to do that. Yeah. And that's where you're like, well, you need to be yourself. No, that's where you don't want to be yourself again. You want to be more of yourself. Yeah. Sometimes you want to be less of yourself if you're too much that way. There's there's this place that, you know, you have to, you know, if you're a musician and you're, uh, you know, 450 pounds and you go up on stage and you are an amazing like pop artist as especially a dude it's going to be really hard to sell yeah, right. okay the same with going you know other differing things you kind of got to fit the visuals and fit the your voice and yeah. things like that but yes i've worked with other people but it just once again i probably didn't I should have hired somebody to help me, you know, set that up. Or I should have been speaking to groups where I teach you how to do that because I've taught so many different comedy classes, but I don't come at comedy like most comedians. I think I come at it. Like I, I, most of my comparisons are music. Yeah. You know, I think of, you know, when you're speaking and this isn't just comedy, but you know, I think of, uh, you don't want to be in one, vocal range the whole time you know i think of led zeppelin was soft and then hard and Mm -hmm. then soft and then hard or nirvana had the same thing so much of rock music or or even funk or anything like that if it's all in that same place the whole time it never connects dynamics yeah yeah and 
it really becomes monotone if you're a speaker, even if you have a good voice, but it's always in the same register where if you're in front of people and you can kind of sell that and then also have maybe a little bit of a story about yourself, everyone's like, well, I don't know what that would be. Everybody's got a little bit of a story Mm -hmm. that helps you under, if you want to come off authentic, it's not just go right into here were the uh, projections for this year. Then you're like, oh my God, I'm right at work. Yeah. Um, but the, you, you don't want your boss to be an entertainer either. That's usually. right. That's right. Yeah. Because then you're like, it's like they're spending too much time being an entertainer. That's right. Yeah. So there's, there's a, a place. Yeah. There is a balance. Yeah. So the, I, I don't, I that's think good. that's how I would answer that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for being so generous with your time. And I, I agree. I mean, you're one of the best ambassadors for Indianapolis and it's, it's really cool. You know, you do work on, uh, often a national scale, sometimes a regional scale, but you're right. always, you're, you're always being very genuine about selling Indianapolis I am. Know, as, a, as a great place, you know, even, just, even despite some of the things that we want to change about it. You know, you know that if you didn't want to change some things and you wouldn't feel passionate about right. your place in the first place, yeah, you'd, right. you'd go to the next place, you know, yeah. it's already done. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I talked about this one time with Gary Dick on that, that matter. And that is, I have been a little disappointed in that I don't feel like I feel like Indianapolis uh, when it comes to food, they're like, you know, let's buy local or let's uh, uh, farm to table and all these kinds of things. But when they think of, oh, I've got an event or I've got uh, a corporate party or well, this person couldn't be very good if they're from Indianapolis. We, we have that with musicians too much too. We Very talk about much. that on the show, the show all the time. Very yeah. much. And it's, it's, it's really disappointing because who's going to understand Indianapolis better than yeah. like me. Yeah. I've lived here for 33 years. I love the Colts. I, you know, I have the same love and hate relationships with the state. Yeah. You know, I, I live, I live, you know, with three kids and a wife here. I, you know, I go to the same growth. So like I'm in bigger, some markets I'm bigger than I am in Indianapolis, which is weird. Um, but that has been a little frustration that I've had, but you know, I'm sure I hold some of that too, you know, that there's just, maybe I haven't done a good enough job of connecting on that front, but I'm working. I think think there's a shift happening, happening too. I won't just using judging music, but I want for people, um, they can check out. You have albums out there on streaming, including "Good Dad, Not a Great Dad." Which yeah, is that's R rated. It's yeah. Um, that's not what I do. Check Please don't, star, don't don't check, don't don't be worried. The star. Your you check out yeah. Scott Long on Facebook. You can find Happy Scott Mondays. Scottcomedy.com is Scott. a good place to go to get Got a lot it. of okay. of everything. And then if you go to YouTube and you put in um, Scott Long uh, comedian, probably most of my dry bar comedy clips that came out a couple years ago uh will pop up and there's over a million views of those 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 are good that's a good representation what i do and if you see him headlining either at clubs here or a charity show check it out or if you're listening to this and you need somebody just to add a different element to your event there you go michael you know that's why we're here just hosted a big event for the kiwanis national convention that just happened a couple of weeks ago, it went great. And they cool. were like, we've never done this before. Yep. That's cool. And I will, you got, 
in the next year or two, I will get on stage and do, I can do five minutes if you'll coach me. I've, I've sa- I'm saying it. I'm saying it to commit myself to it. Right I love now. that. All right. Scott Long, thanks so much. Thanks for Appreciate having me. It.